We are going to be going on in our series, but uh, we're going to be talking about a man who was a father, Abraham. So if you have your Bibles, open them with me to Hebrews chapter 11. I recognize on Father's Day, I see a lot of empty seats. People do things with their fathers. That's okay. Amen. I'm glad you're here. The Lord's here. And we're going to get right into God's word today. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. You know it well. Read it together with me if you can. It's on the screen. Should be. There it is. Now faith is the assurance, come on, I can't hear you. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now so far we've taken a look at Abel, and we learned so much about the significance of God's grace toward him. Even though he was killed by his brother, his sacrifice was more excellent, and the Bible says it was credited to him as righteousness. Also, we saw and we looked at the life of Enoch. Enoch, the Bible says simply this, that he walked with God and he was not, for God took him. And it, it, we talked about the significance of the intimacy of relationship that Enoch must have had in order to gain such favor with God that his faith was great. And that because of that, God said, I no longer want you just walking around there. I want you here with me. And so God took him from this world. The third person we talked about just two weeks ago before Pentecost Sunday was Noah. And the example there that, that he was faithful to God in spite of everything that happened. Scripture calls him a preacher of righteousness. That he had a, a message about his life. And the most significant thing about Noah's life is not the fact that uh, there were, um, you know, the myriads of, as we talked about, the myriads of kinds of animals that were vertebrate breathing over 90%, 98%, excuse me, of all life on this planet is, is plant-based or ocean in the ocean. So a very small percentage, perhaps as few as 6,500 to 13,000 kinds of animals on an enormous ship. That was an amazing thing. But even more impressive was the fact that in spite of all of that, he was the only one on the entire planet. 1,656 years of procreation that could have been in the millions of people that was found righteous enough that loved God and had intimacy with God enough to where God saved him and his family. And this week we move on to chapter 8 and we talk about Abraham. Let's take a look. Read with me uh, verse 8 all the way down through verse 10. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. You know, in Genesis, there's 13 chapters dedicated to Abraham's life. His birth, going to Egypt because of, his, because of the famine, separating from Lot, and then rescuing Lot. And then and his, God gives a covenant with Abraham, I will make your offspring numerous. So in Genesis chapter 15, Abram is sad because he and Sarah have no children. They are unable to get pregnant. This is devastating. And Abram tells the Lord, God, he complains. He says, God, I guess my estate and all my inheritance and all my wealth and everything that you have blessed me with, I'm going to have to leave behind to another relative because I won't have a son to leave this inheritance to. So God takes him outside and Genesis chapter 15 and verse 5, God responds to him and says, he brought him outside and he said, look toward the heaven and the number of stars. If you are able to count them, 
Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. God told him to look at the sky, go ahead and look up. He wasn't telling him literally to count every single star. It's figurative, but he's saying, if you can do that, you'll be able to count your offspring. In other words, this is an impossible task, Abraham. I'm going to give you such a blessing that you won't even be able to know what to do with it. Because of this, we see all of the blessing that God was going to pour out on Abraham. And because of this, as we've seen with Abel, Enoch, and Noah, Scripture says that it was also credited to them as righteousness. It meant salvation. And that's what salvation is, right? I mean, salvation is, is having faith in Jesus, believing in Jesus, knowing Jesus, uh, having confidence in him. And, and the Bible uses the word credit. And, and credit is an interesting word because it's an accounting term. So God put into Abraham's account righteousness for salvation. He put an investment into Abraham's account number. It would be like you going down to the bank on payday, taking your paycheck, putting it in the bank, and it's credited to your account. Well, we have the same thing. God credits to us righteousness through the sacrifice of Jesus, and he also withdraws sin, which is a powerful thing. Now, all mankind is, is bound to this salvation. And I think this is something that we probably should clarify. Let's take a look. Um, it's not in your outline. How about 1 John? Let's start there. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, may I dabble a bit with your theology. It is interesting to me here that the Bible says and uses the word in some of your Bibles, perhaps, the word propitiation. The scripture says that God, uh, the atoning sacrifice, meaning the propitiation, meaning that he gave himself and took the play, took our place for our sins. The Bible says that, that God did this and it uses the term all mankind. All mankind, God has paid for their sin. It doesn't matter if they're living for God or not. It doesn't matter if they are um, in the tavern every night, if they're drinking their life away, if they're selling themselves out there, if they're, if they're filled with all kinds of vileness and sinful things that we might consider awful in this world. The Bible says that because of the sacrifice of Jesus, all mankind's sins are atoned for. They are paid for. Now, if it messes with your theology a bit, because Christ has paid for the sin of all mankind, because sometimes, or many times, I think we've often heard it, or we have the impression that because we confess our sin, God, for, God saves us. But salvation is not earned that way. You will not be saved by the confession of your sin. Salvation doesn't mean anything about confessing your sin. Salvation is about believing in Jesus. Now, I think we get this right, don't we? In Romans chapter 10, it's open. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, and you know these scriptures well. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, right? And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and with your mouth you confess and are saved. It does not say if you declare with your mouth your sins and believe in Jesus and believe that God raised him from the dead. It says if you believe in your heart 
the Lord Jesus. So our confession of faith is simply that. Now, sins are very important. In fact, turn with me to, to Hebrews. I know you've got your Bibles out and you're searching them diligently because that's a really important thing to do, right? You got your electronic Bible, your fake Bible on the phone. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 9 tells us what confession of sin is for. Confession of faith in Christ is believing in Jesus. Um, 1 John 1, wherever we were, verse 20, I think. And then Romans 10, 9 and 10 tells us that our action of faith is believing in Jesus. But confession of sin still remains. Then what is the purpose for confessing sin? Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. Let's back up a little bit. The blood of goats in 13 and bulls in the ashes of heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonial unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanses our consciences, consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. So the purpose of confessing sin is so that our conscience is cleared. Our guilt is lifted. You know what that's like when you come to Christ. If you have something that you've done, you know is against him and it's difficult to pray because it's, you, it's impossible nearly to pray if you've got this thing in your life and you have to come before. When you offer that to God, you say, God, forgive me for my sins. The spirit of God affirms the work of the blood of Jesus in that moment and our conscience is cleared. That's an advantage, believer. Right? Because there is no more the guilt or the burden of the conscience any longer. We can leave that at the cross. We leave it with Jesus. Our action of faith and believing in Jesus is there. We are saved. We belong to him. We understand that. But I guarantee you that this, the same sins that I sinned yesterday or the day before or whatever that it was, they're still there until I come to Christ. But it doesn't mean I'm not believing in Jesus. Come on. How many times have you gone to church maybe and you've heard some hellfire and brimstone preaching? If you drive out the parking lot tonight and you don't repent of your sins and you get in a car accident and you die right then, if you have sin in your life, you are going to hell. Come on, we've all heard it, right? Now don't get mixed up with premeditated, prolonged, habitual sin that leads us away from relationship with God. Okay, but there is a place, the Bible says here, that because the guilt is so great, and many people go a lot of places with their guilt, right? They turn to a bottle, they turn to this, they turn to a relationship, they turn to that or this and everything else, but we have the advantage of the Spirit of God. So this is the problem that I think sometimes we try, that we have, for our wrongdoing, thinking maybe that it makes us saved, and rather we should confess our sin because God relieves that guilt through confession. Now, let's get back to Abraham. Anyway, that was a sideline. Uh, that was free. You don't have to pay for it. <laughs> yeah. Trusting God means looking beyond what we can see to what God sees. So what's ama so amazing about Abram's story, his name's Abram at this point, is, is what happens next. God gives him an amazing promise. But he thinks that God is not moving fast enough. I'm not going to have an heir. Sarah and I are old. God's not coming through like he, he thought that he would. So Sarah 
says to her husband, Abram, take my servant girl because of this promise and have relations with her, then you'll have a son, then God's promise will be fulfilled, right? There are a number of problems with this plan. I mean, God establishes marriage, right? Gives Sarah to Abraham and his wife with the intention that God is going to give Abram a son through this union. Genesis chapter 16, verse 3 says, After Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abraham's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Now, here's the problem. Abraham tried to do in his own strength, in his physical body, in his own flesh, what God was going to do by his power. And we will never, in likewise, experience God's promises if we don't trust him to accomplish them, right? What does it mean to be a person of faith then if it is not to trust the promise of God's word? God is willing to give us the capacity to see what our eyes cannot. This is an advantage of a believer. When there's no evidence or reason to believe his promise will happen, God gives us the ability to see it finished, to see it completed, completely done. For example, if God promises to give you provision for your need, what do you do? We follow the instructions of God's word, right? And the things he leads us to do. We work, we store up what we have, the resources, we invest what we have, we give what belongs to him, we become industrious as much as possible, and we give it to God and trust him with the results. We don't go out and borrow a high interest loan to accomplish it faster. Come on now. Amen? Amen? Okay, I was just wondering. I mean, if, if, if we want to get married, we trust God for the right person that loves him. We don't dabble in relationships with people that are far from God. We'll compromise his word. It means a person of faith, when we, when we may tempted, be tempted toward anxiety or suffering with that, we do what the word of God says. We pray, we meditate on his word. We ask other believers to pray with us, to counsel with us, to encourage us. We share our need. What we don't do is let our anxiety come and drive us toward unhealthy relationships, withdraw from people, and turn to whatever addiction might be out there to help satisfy the pain. We trust God, not our own strength. People of faith means that when someone does us wrong, we trust God by forgiving them. It doesn't mean we allow bitterness to grow and consume and destroy our relationships. We trust God, not our own strength, right? That's people of faith. That's faith walking. That's believing God. We're trusting, we're living according to what his word instructs us to do in every circumstance. And we trust him with the results because people of faith have that advantage because God is working in our behalf. God is working in our lives. Amen? Psalm 37, 1, I love this. It says, oh, excuse me. People of faith have the advantage of trust. There we go. Psalm 37, 1. If we want to maximize the impact of our life and give us peace, we have to completely trust him. We have to live trusting him, not fretting. We're not worried. And what happens, it says in Psalm 37, 1, don't worry about the wicked or envy those who do wrong. For like grass, they soon fade away. Like spring flowers, they soon wither. Have you ever done that? God, why are these people so far from you, yet they seem to be doing so well? And I'm not doing well at all. Why do the wicked prosper? Why are there politicians out there shouting things that are so inflammatory against your holiness and your goodness, and they seem to be prospering? God, what is happening in our land? What's happening with my friends who, who are far from God, yet all these wonderful things seem to be happening? And the Bible says, don't worry about them. Hey, like, like grass, they're going to come and go. They're going to soon fade away. 
Now, verse 3 says, trust in the Lord and do good. Then you'll satisfy in the land and uh, safely live safely in the land and prosper. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Commit everything you do to the Lord. Trust him and he will help you. He will make your innocence radiate like the dawn and the justice of your cause will shine like the noonday sun. This is just another advantage that people of faith have. We don't have to worry because we, we trust in the Lord. He will sustain us. Those without Christ, they don't have this advantage. This is part of our witness. This is part of our testimony that when we're trusting in God and he strengthens us in the middle of no matter what disaster has become our life, that people look at us again, I want some of that. What you got there? We're not, I'm, I'm not saying that we sit back and do nothing we're not pie in the sky, sitting on our seat, and wait for the check to come in the mail type Christians, right? I mean, we're going to apply God's word. I mean, I've, I've received checks in the mail. I know what that kind of, I mean, I'm sure you have too. Like, wow, where did this come from? I have no idea what's going to happen with that. But that's the advantage that people of faith have, trusting in God. This next one, faith is at the heart of everything we believe, friends, and everything we are when we follow Christ. But Abram's story isn't finished. Let's get back to it. So after he does this, after he failed, and he failed big, right? I mean, this is a huge failure. I mean, Hagar now is pregnant. Sarah abuses her so badly because she's jealous of her pregnancy. And imagine how this woman is feeling right now. I mean, she, she, this is an ugly mess. It's really messy. It's, it's terribly messy. It's ugly. It's out of order. It's, it does, nothing seems right. She was given to Abram to bear a son, beaten by Sarah, and now she's all alone. How many know that God never leaves us alone, though? As she is out there, an angel of the Lord comes and gives her hope, tells her to go home. God sees her pain. He hears her misery and tells her that her son will have a great purpose in the world. And there is another advantage people of faith have, that, that we understand that God has purpose in everything that we do that he understands the hardships that we may endure and he's not surprised by them. We are never abandoned when we fail or we feel alone. Abraham failed and Hagar felt alone, yet God was with them both. I have known many over the years afraid of even perhaps praying because they feel the guilt has so consumed them so severely that they don't feel as though they, they can even talk to God. They don't, don't feel like they even have a right to speak with him. They, what a lie from the enemy, friends. That is just not true. Let me tell you, especially when you have failed, pray. When you feel like you've blown it, when you've gotten drunk, when you've wrecked you know, you've watched that garbage on television or you've had that relationship or you've doubted or you've hurt yourself, you, you've floundered, you've hurt others in many ways, you're just treading water. When you're, when you're at that point, pray. Amen. Repent and move on. The enemy wants you to stay down. He wants you to grovel. He wants you to be a pauper. He wants you to be strangled. He wants you to feel punished. He wants you down. He wants to throw you on the ground, put his foot on your throat and say, stay right there. 
That's his work. That's his, that's his motive. That's everything that he wants for you. But friends, when you're at that point, we can't stay down. We have to stand up. You may have failed, but God's mercies are new every morning. You may have been living in squalor, but his love will pull you out of that mire. You may have lied, but his truth will restore you. Your sin may be driving you crazy, but where there's a lot of sin, scripture says there's a lot more grace. You are are never alone. You are never abandoned. You are never too far away. You are never put out to pasture. He is always there. You can't go, go down enough. You can't go high enough. You can't go east enough. You can't go west enough. He is still there. He will never leave you alone. The promise from scripture in Hebrews 13 verse 5, he will, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Verse 6 I love, he says, so we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Nothing. The temptation to fear came into Hagar. And I can understand why. She succumbed to it, in fact. She's out there alone and she's, she's distraught. She's pregnant. The temptation to fear comes when I dwell on my circumstances. Remember Elijah? He's on Mount Carmel and this great display of God's power ensues, right? The prophets of Baal are jumping around, cutting themselves. Elijah is confident in the Lord so much so that he tells them, shout louder, scream louder. Maybe your God is busy. The connotation of that word right there is maybe he's relieving himself. Elijah's confident, right? Maybe your God is out taking a leak, right? Can I say that in church? Maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe your God's busy. He's doing other things. And they're jumping around. They're waiting for the fire to come and consume the wet sacrifice and all this stuff. And he's making fun of them. He is so confident in God. He is so absolutely sure that God's going to come through. And what does he do? He does the praises. Boom, boom, fire comes down. And then he kills them all. And what's he doing next? Running. He hears this about this woman, Jezebel. Jezebel's coming after me because I killed all of her buddies and now she's gonna come after me. And so he's in a cave. He's, I can see him sitting there just moping with his face in his hands. I'm the only one left. Of all the prophets, I'm the only one. God says, I got more. Remember Moses feeling overwhelmed, people and all the problems and everything that's going on. He gets so disgusted. He says to God, did I give birth to these people? Did I got to take care of them? I mean, God is probably abused, but God permits heavy burdens, doesn't he? F.B. Meyer wrote, if God promised his servants an unbroken run of prosperity, there would be many counterfeit Christians don't be surprised at famine. It is permitted to root you deeper, just as a whirlwind makes a tree grapple deeper roots into the soil. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God's strength is for us to endure those times. 
And I'm so grateful for that. In the middle of all this, God gives Hagar the strength to endure. For the child of God, dire circumstances are only avenues for God's power to be on display. This is an advantage that people of faith have. When we're facing difficult times, when we're facing difficult circumstances, we can know that it's only an opportunity for God to do something great. What's so amazing about Hagar's story is that this wasn't the last time it would happen. After Sarah had finished weaning Isaac, Abraham throws this big party. And as he throws this big party, Ishmael makes fun of it. If we don't know necessarily what happened, but Abraham throws this big party, you know, uh, the Isaac has finished weaning, Sarah's had the baby, and, and, and now this, this older sibling, if you will, this half-brother is like um, making fun of this whole ordeal. Maybe he's making fun of Isaac. Well, now she's had it. Sarah, this is the last straw. She had put Hagar out. She was jealous, envious of her before for being pregnant. So she tells Abraham, get rid of Hagar and Ishmael. I don't want them around me. Well, scripture says that Abraham is really upset by this. And by this time, of course, he's attached to Ishmael. It's his son, after all. I mean, he loves him. And in fact, he was so attached to him that God has to come to Abraham and tell him to listen to his wife's advice. Now, this seems so weird, right? Now, he is being told by God to do the opposite of what he didn't want to do before. But nonetheless, he does it. But he's so attached. He packs some water and food and sends him out into the desert. Now, this is wonderful, right? This is quite awful. I mean, to us, this is all kinds of messed up, right? I mean, this is like Mari Povich show. This is like, this is like, you know, one of those daytime television soap operas. This is just awful stuff. So he packs food and water, sends him out, and this is terrible. And I mean, this is all kinds of messed up. And and, and I don't think we should be surprised if God sends us to the wilderness. But nonetheless, she goes out, the food runs out, the water runs out, and in desperation, believing death was imminent, she tells her son, she puts him at this tree, and she tells him to stay here, she's going to leave him. She walks far enough away so she doesn't hear him cry. Scripture says she told herself she, did, she couldn't bear to hear him die. Now, Ishmael was born when Abraham was 86. So this is... Four, how old are you, Hannah? 13. He's 14 years old. Oftentimes we think of this instance, we think that he, she left a little baby under this bush, right? But no, she goes and tells this 14-year-old, stay here, don't follow me, You're, or I'm going to leave you alone. This is it. Can you imagine the emotions running through the heart and mind of a 13, 14-year-old kid sitting under a tree? I can't imagine. And of course he's crying. Of course he's upset. Of course he's, he's tore up. And it's not a baby that's going to die of starvation and, and, and maybe doesn't understand everything. This is a 14-year-old boy. And he's being told to stay under this tree. And here she walks away and she's disheartened. She's crying. I'm sure she's torn up. She, she feels sad. Everything is all wrong about this. But once again, God intervenes, gives her a well of water, shows her where water is, and they are saved. God only, only once gave Abraham and Hagar both the same promise, and that through Ishmael, a great nation would be born. 
What is so profound about all of this is the human touch that God is extremely sympathetic toward. I love what Hebrews says in another place, that he is not untouched with the feelings of our weaknesses. We don't serve a high priest who's untouched, but in every way was tempted just as we are yet without sin. That we serve a God that feels our pain, understands our weaknesses, and, and although there were that, that God was going to do great things and the, there, through Abraham, Hagar, Ishmael, Isaac, and Sarah, God, God expresses his concern in their lives for everything that's happened, even though sometimes they're indifferent toward him, even though Sarah is indifferent as she was toward Hagar and, and being so mean as to put her out, God still has love and compassion on her. God isn't just into using people to accomplish his wants. Rather, God gives us purpose and is concerned about those purposes in our lives and about us personally. Hagar would have never thought that she would be in this situation. I'm sure no woman would have ever thought that, but he gives her strength. He gives her provision, understanding to know how to make it through some pretty desperate circumstances. And it, it's, it's not the direction that she would have chosen. It's not the way that she wanted to go, that's for sure. But God did something bigger in her life and through her. Friends, don't be surprised if God changes your direction away from where you were headed. He is equally concerned about doing something in you as he is doing something through you. Philippians 1.6 tells us, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Don't get frustrated by life's setbacks because God is doing something in you. Don't fret because of failures because God is doing something in you. Don't regret and worry because God is doing something in you. This is another advantage that people of faith have. We need to understand that God is not just doing something through us. He is not just concerned about our ministry. He is not just concerned about us being a, a father. He is not concerned about us earning a living. He is not concerned about just his mission through us. He is concerned about every trial. He is concerned about every failure. Every hurtful thing is only an avenue for God to do something great in us. Personal life changes are difficult. I'm going through them right now. Um, it's, it's not fun. I see my boys older and they came to us all at once four boys between 1995 and 2000 and now i'm seeing four of them leave my house very quickly within just a matter of just a little bit of time and it's difficult how many others have gone through this come <laughs> all right i look at this and, and i'm just i'm beside myself and you know what i do I start thinking about all the things I wish I would have done. That's just my flesh. It's going, you surely messed up with that part. You, you worked and tried to pastor at the same time so many years. You, you, did all this, you did all these things, right? And so all that guilt of, boy, I wish I would have. I wish I would have. I, 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 I wish I hadn't said that or or done this. I wish I would have made a better example in these areas that seem to be so difficult. And so I look back and I want them serving the Lord. I want them loving Jesus more than anything. So that, that's my hope. The difficult part is that I know myself. And so we leave them in the hands of the Lord, right? We, we trust him with them and, and we do what we can and we move on. 
I, I know what that guilt is like. I've been guilty. I, I have not been good. But friends, God never leaves us alone. No matter what we do, no matter how we failed, it doesn't matter. He is always there. Those things that hurt us the most, you imagine Hagar's situation. Through those tragedies and failures, God did great things. And God is into doing great things. God's promise to Abraham that Sarah would conceive sounded crazy as well, right? I mean, here is Abraham. Sarah's 90. He's 100 years old. Three visitors come and tell Abraham he's going to have a son. Sarah overhears him, overhears them in the tent, and, and pff, she laughs, right? I mean, Scripture says that she was past childbearing years. These three even tell Abraham that Sarah is, is laughing. So they tell Abraham this as well. So she's in the tent laughing. He doesn't catch it. These three say she's going to laugh. She's laughing. And, and so, uh, in fact, in, in Genesis chapter 18, verse 12, so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, Am I worn out? And my Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Wow, what a statement. At the appointed time, I will return to you about this next time, about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, yeah, you did. <laughs> That's the Larry Ellis, L-E-V version right there. Yeah, you did. I mean, you see this old cu older couple, right? I mean, she's 90 years old. Francis, are you going to have a son soon? Francis turned 95 on Christmas. And so um, it's, it's close to Francis's age that Sarah is, and she's going to have a baby. This is mir miraculous. This is this is beyond her childbearing years. This is, this is something only the hand of God can do. And God gives this, this promise to Abraham. Well, Abraham's believing it and Sarah's going, ha, ha, ha. oh, this is funny. I, I could just see it. Yeah, you did. You laughed. The promise though for this is applicable to, to every believer is that there is nothing too hard for the Lord. This is the advantage that people of faith have. We, we trust God for the impossible. We know that we are in his care. We, we know we are in his provision. When we consider Abraham and Sarah able to conceive and have Isaac, we think, right, that's possible. But scripture says, the scripture doesn't say that Abraham was surprised by it. In fact, he heard God's call to him to be a great, he was going to be a great nation. He survived Egypt. He rescued Lot, received God's covenant of the circumcision to his descendants. He had such intimacy with God and God, he pleads with God over Sodom. Remember that God even made Abraham very wealthy, wealthy enough to sustain his, his inheritance for generations to come to so much wealth that that it supported this, this, this huge plan that God had. And God always backs up his promises. So God gave Abraham the wealth to do. Abraham had hope because he knew that this world also wasn't it. Friends, that is our hope. This world isn't it. God told Abraham, you're going to be a great nation. Oh, and by the way, you're looking for something else. You're not looking for a city that you're going to be able to make with hands. You're not looking for a place that you're going to build on your own. Look, in fact, what he says to him in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. 
By faith, Abraham obeyed. This is our text. And then in verse 9, he went to live in a land of promise as a foreign living in tents with dead. In verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Praise God. Friends, I am so glad this world isn't it. I'm glad that God has given us, don't get me wrong, the Holy Spirit has empowered us to live a life of blessing here and to encourage others and to be a part of the family of God and to enjoy life in this world. I appreciate that so much, but this life isn't it. If you got your eyes so much in this world and everything that's going on here, so enamored by it, I want to let you know you're going to be sorely disappointed in this place once you even get a glimpse of heaven. The Bible says that this place is amazing. It's described as the bride, the place where the church will have its home 1400 miles in each direction if you were in our revelation class you you heard the the d- details the walls are 200 feet thick it's 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 each gate is made out of a single pearl and there's going to be coming in the ability to come and go out of this city there's 12 foundations the bible says each made from different jewels and it's really tough to imagine in fact paul writes in first corinthians 2 9 what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor entered the nor the heart imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. Revelation 21, 27 says, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the, who's, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Not only is there great hope and vision for an eternity in heaven where all tears are gone, where there's, there's, there's another warning, where nothing unclean, those who are not believing in Jesus will not be able to go. Jesus promised to the disciples, as we know very well, that he was going away to make a place for them. John 14, 1, don't let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. Later, the Bible explains that the whole church is brought into God's presence through this believers living and dead being caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. Every person that accepts Jesus will be in this event. 1 Corinthians 15 Uh, Verse 51, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep. We'll be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we too will be changed. And this is the the difference that we have. That that as believers, although we're not perfect, although we have sin, I want to let you know that that, that you you can know something with great confidence that you can inherit eternal life. That this promised place, just as was promised to Abraham, a promise to be fulfilled is also promised to us that we aren't looking to the the dregs and mire of an end of life that is going to go nowhere, that we have that hope that we're going to be in eternity with Christ. It's about believing in Jesus. It's about understanding that he is our salvation and that he is our hope and loving him. And because of that promise, we can have great hope in this life. It doesn't stop when we're, when we're in that moment, perhaps of our, our final days. We don't have to worry or fret because we're going to be with the Lord forever. This is the comfort that we have. We're not condemned. We are not condemned if we believe in Jesus. This is something that Abraham understood about God. He understood that he walked with God. And because of that, his faithfulness, he believed God that he was going to a place, a land of inheritance. He trusted God that he was going to be the, the birthplace of a great nation, of his nation, of God's appointed. These were promises that he held on to. 
John 5.24 tells us that we are not condemned, but we are crossed from death to life. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This is only possible because of God's grace. We have the advantage in this life of eternity. We have the advantage of this life of eternity, that we have a hope that goes beyond what our eyes can see. Abraham's hope was way beyond what his eyes could see. And yet promise after promise, God kept fulfilling that in him. You know, sometimes in this world, we are consumed and overrun with that guilt. We may, fear, we may feel alone like Hagar. We might have and be filled with jealousy like Sarah. But as I look at the life of Abraham, I recognize that if we receive God's word, no matter what happens, we can move forward with great confidence. Abraham messed everything up. He took the wrong advice. He thought the wrong thoughts. He went about it in his own ability, with his own strength. And yet, no matter what he did, no matter how he had failed, God still kept his word. God never goes back on his promise, friends. If you're buried with guilt today, if you're buried with shame, confess to the Lord that sin because as Hebrews 9 says, that he will clear the conscience by the blood of Jesus. The power of God is available to take away that guilt, the responsibility that you might bear. That is the advantage of people of faith. 